from KCRW. It's Greater LA, and I'm Steve Chiotakis with the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. We're coming to you from a studio, which is usually where I am, but today it's a music studio where I am in the San Fernando Valley. Now, the Grammys are coming up, big event, obviously, for the music industry here in Los Angeles and around the world. And you'll recognize a lot of the names of the people nominated for awards. Beyonce, Adele, Kendrick Lamar. Mary J. Blige is up for Album of the Year. If I can pick the best parts of love, I will start it like this. I will start at the time we took our first trip. I will start at the time we had our first kiss. That's her song, Love Without the Heartbreak, from the album Good Morning Gorgeous. You hear those keys? Well, that came from the hands and talent of Roger Shahayed, producer, composer, songwriter. And right now we're at his studio, at his home in the hills above Ventura Boulevard. And Roger Shahayed, it's so great to be here with you today and for welcoming us into your studio. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. It's this great is to have you. quite a setup over here, right? Yeah. It didn't start off this way for you, though, did it? No, it did not. <laughs> it, it did not. <laughs> it's, it's, I guess, more humble beginnings. I mean, you know, when you think about growing up here in Los Angeles, um, not far from here either, right? No, about 10, 15 minutes away. My parents still live there. So you, you, do you describe yourself as sort of a valley boy? Um, I would say so. I would say that I definitely, you know, obviously being born and raised here kind of by default, I am a valley boy, but I feel like being so immersed in music has helped me uh become cultured you know beyond living and growing up in this place which i love you know all the memories and all the friends that i've made uh growing up out here but you know most importantly i was introduced to uh my first you know my first music teacher um who lived just about a block and a half away from where my i grew up at my parents so i used to actually uh skateboard or scooter over to my piano lesson when i was a kid and that's when things started, you know, changing. I actually didn't really uh, start falling in love with music and and piano and everything more until I was about 16, 17 years old. But during that time was when I started really connecting with c composers and compositions a lot more. Like I, I fell in love with the, a few pieces by Chopin and that sort of steered me in the direction of being like, hey, maybe this is something I could. So classical music. Yeah, classical yeah. was where I, took it seriously first and you know i had been taking lessons since i was seven years old but i really did it to make my parents happy because my dad was very strict on me practicing and he really wanted me to you know play the hard pieces and show off at the recitals and stuff and then i it sort of picked up more on it a little bit later both your parents are immigrants right yes they are yeah my my father's from damascus syria and my mother's from buenos aires from argentina yeah and they both met here in uh, la back in the 80s and did their backgrounds did they affect your musical tastes actually my dad is a singer he's an incredible singer he sings in arabic and he plays uh this Arabic percussion, they call it uh, Durbake or, or the Dumbek, um, which you hear a lot, you know, if you've ever seen like belly dancing and, you know, there's a guy playing the drum on his lap. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what my dad did. But he he sang a lot and exposed me to a lot of Arabic music. My mom listened, you know, showed me a lot of Argentinian folk music, tango and stuff like that. So I was very, I had a very interesting uh, you know, sonic uh, upbringing, just listening to different ethnicities 
of music. How does a creative process begin for you? I mean, does somebody reach out to you? Is you know, does you know, does a Jack Harlow or does somebody you know, uh, uh, Mary J. Blige or J. Lo, whoever it is, right? A music label, do they reach out to you and say, "Hey, we need we need this from you. We need this part of a song from you." Honestly, um, especially lately in in the last few years, most of the collaborations that I've had the opportunity to to get are have been through kind of word of mouth, like somebody's like, oh, you should hit up Roger or who should I work with? And, you know, the result of that has been, you know, I've definitely uh, picked up some work because of an uh, Instagram message. Like, uh, you know, um, that's how I linked up with Jack Harlow, who uh, sent me a DM on Instagram in like May of 2021. And he was he was just like, what's up, fam? And, you know, I want to work. And, and then I, I said, great. And I had sort of been manifesting that collaboration in my mind. And I can put you in. I feel like it all really starts with what you want to do and, you know, putting it out there into the universe. And then when the pe right people reach out, you just get that feeling like this is something that I should try. And, you know, we usually get in the room, get into the studio, whether it's here or wherever they like to work. And, you know, we talk. Sometimes I'll have them play me stuff that they've been working on so I can get like just a little gist of what's going on. And then I like to just do it the way I've always done it. Just sit at the piano, sit at one of my keyboards decide what soundscape we're going to go with. And then I just start plucking away, playing some chords, playing some riffs, some things that will inspire a melody or a story. And when we have that locked in, it all kind of just goes from there. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, sure. Like like going going to going to a keyboard. You've got how many of them? 14, 15 uh, in here? Yeah, there's a bunch. All right. There's a bunch in here. I love coming up with, with parts that and riffs that people you know, recognize and and sometimes it's as simple as you know pulling up a piano and just uh, this is a third keyboard going like right. this, you know, which is the this is the keyboard I used on broccoli. A little chopsticky. Yeah, you know, very childlike, and then <laughs> um, and then you know we can really go into any world with any of this these. This is so cool. Do you feel? Not slighted, but do you feel like when an artist wins something that you had your hand in, do you want that Grammy to be here? <laughs> I feel like we kind of choose, especially as producers and creators, you choose the path that you want to be on and the kind of recognition that you want to have. And I feel like for me, I do love that I can go into a studio and work with uh, somebody like J-Lo or Mary or, or Jack or Doja, or, you know, these people that are just massive artists and, and to be able to like go and tap into their world and then I can go to Target or I can go to the mall and nobody really knows who I am. You know, maybe once or twice I've gotten someone being like, oh, I, I know you, but it never happens. So I, I do like the fact that I can sort of live a normal lifestyle, but have a very abnormal work lifestyle slash music experience. Roger Shahayed, thanks so much for inviting us into your home, into your studio, into your menagerie, into your, your children of keyboards here. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. And, Absolutely. And keep up all the creative juices, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure. See you soon. 
up one down with my toes ten. Flewed out my boots, so I'll put a cork in it. Love it when you be crying out when I'm corset. I don't think you gon' make it. Do not let me start raging. Losing my patience. This ain't staying in Vegas. There's more sides to the story. I'ma tell everybody. Had your been caught side with your arm around me. Had your been first class with your burnt ass out in Abu Dhabi. Could have been what we should have been, but you lost a bet. Now you gotta find Coming up, a lot of music is organic in collaboration, as so is some of your food. There are rules about what can be labeled organic. And across the United States, they're about to get more stringent. That story, right after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on with Greater LA from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiotakis. What do you think of when you hear the word organic, when you see a product at the grocery store with the label organic? Food produced without chemicals, all natural, of the earth, healthy. The word organic might mean all those things, but the product it's attached to might be something else. The uncertainty around organic labeling has prompted the USDA to implement new rules to protect the integrity of the organic supply chain and build consumer and industry trust. In other words, clean up the dirty world of organic food. Tom Chapman is the CEO of the Organic Trade Association. It's been pushing for these changes for some time now. Hey, Tom. Hey. Thanks for being here. Stephen Murray Jr. is a farmer in the Bakersfield area. His family's farm, Murray Family Farm, sells produce at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Stephen, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Tom, these new rules, um, they get into the weeds a bit, no pun intended. Can you can you give us a, a sense of what they do, why they're needed? Yeah, so nothing is changing about what's meant by the word organic. It still means all those great things that you said about it. But what is changing is it's really upping the bar in terms of enforcement. It's requiring every entity in the supply chain to be certified. It's uh increasing the training and uh, consistency amongst certifiers. It's uh, adding additional uh, controls at import. And it's really just boosting that trust that consumers can have in that organic seal, that when they pick that product up off the shelf, that they truly know they're getting an organic product. The Washington Post a few years ago, Tom, had a story about a shipment of millions of pounds of, of regular soybeans, regular soybeans that came from Ukraine. And they went through Turkey. And by the time they got to the United... And you might be aware of this story, right? By the time Mm -hmm. they got here to the United States, those regular soybeans had been labeled organic, which made them much more valuable, right? You can get more money for something that's labeled organic. How does that happen? That happened in part because imports weren't sufficiently controlled and every entity in the supply chain wasn't required to be certified. And so, you know, folks with financial interests could just do a change in the paperwork. These new rules crack down on all of that. There's uh, Imports are a critical control point. Uh, they will require uh, specific documentation at import controlled by Customs and Border Patrol, as well as the USDA. And every entity in that, in that supply chain, whether they handle the product or just shifting paperwork, will need to be certified by independent third-party certification agents to verify that they're, they have the sufficient controls. 
and personnel in place to ensure that the organic products uh, stay organic. Stephen Murray, your, your family grows traditional crops and organic crops, right? That, that is correct. What, what goes into growing organic? How do you prove they're organic? There's a lot that goes into organic. So there's many checks and balances. Um, we're certified with the CDFA, which is through the state. And then you also have to have a secondary certifying agency. And you have to have all of your paperwork up to date for, for both of them be completely transparent and along the whole process record basically every single thing that we sell uh, as organic show which farm it came from the appellation record every single practice that we do inside of our organic system plan so um to to, to call something organic it really means something. So, especially in the state of California. I mean, what what kind of when you talk about certification? I mean, what kind of information are you providing? You know, and and can and can farmers go around that? Can any farmer claim something is organic, but you know, kind of fudge the numbers or whatever? We have the most rules and regulations in California of any place in the in the union. And um, what we do is is we have to provide maps. Um, there's lots and lots of maps of every single thing. We have to notify the, um, the water district. We have to notify the road, the roads, like, uh, we're, we're by the, by the 58 freeway. So we have to tell them that we're organic so that they don't do anything that might infringe on our organic status. If we ever have uh, any contract work, uh, or anyone who enters our organic property, we have to have a, a notice sign saying that they are in there. Everything is recorded from from the very beginning. Um, it has you have to use all certified organic products for for three years. Um, yeah, I mean there's 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 just lots and lots of record keeping and um, but but as far as what stops people is is there's lots of inspections. We we get random inspections. Uh, random samples are taken. We'll have times where people will go like we we had someone come to the the Santa Barbara farmers market in the spring. We do up to uh, thirty five farmers markets a week. We'll have someone come and, um, you know, they, they, they'll get samples of, of the different items we have organic and do and do test on them to see, you know, if there's any residues. Um, and then internally, uh, we have to do soil testing. Uh, if we want to apply fertilizers or, or do any amendments, we have to prove that we need the, to do them before we do them. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot. A lot that goes into being certified organic. All right. Well, it also speaks to the trust issue, which Tom talked about. And Tom, I'll bring you back in. It, it, you know, is there enough manpower to regulate the organic industry so people can trust that label? I want to touch on a couple of things, if I can. I mean, there's 46,000 certified operations. The cases of fraud are quite rare. They're they're few and far between. And the only reason why you hear about them inorganic versus other other labels is because organic is the only eco-label out there that comes with federal enforcement. So when you look at labels like natural or regenerative or non-GMO, you don't have consequences like jail time and fines that come from when you cheat and get caught. So we have the enforcement, you have the consequences, and you have clear, consistent standards. That really sets organic apart from anything else. Now, when it comes to resources to actually enforce upon this, you know, this all started in the from from those you know bad instances that we talked about, those bad actors infiltrating the supply chain. But then in 2018, you know, OTA with a bunch of other partners worked with Congress to ensure that the USDA had the mandate and the authority to enforce and the resources it needed to go after them and do this enforcement action. 
state of California is even special because you have the Department of Food and Ag here that does additional enforcements in California. So I do think consumers, as they pick up those organic products, they can really trust that you got someone like Stephen Murray behind it, you know, doing all that hard work to ensure they're getting that, that environmentally friendly and healthy food delivered to them. And there, there are, Tom, there are four categories of organic, right? There are. Um, there's there's different levels of it. So you have 100% organic, which is something that's a, a really un, unmodified, very pure product, right? You're talking fresh fresh produce, maybe a very simply processed product like a like a like a juice or something. You have the organic category, which allows for a five percent. Um, list of other additives or ingredients that could be used. Either the products aren't available in organic or they're, they're the products that just you can't make organically. So baking soda, right? We all use baking soda when we make cookies. It's, a, it's, a, it's minerals. So you can't farm that organically. So there's an allowance for that 5%. And then there's the made with organic, which you know is, allows for a 30%. But there's controls in all of these. That fourth category is, is you can't really make an organic claim. You can only claim the ingredients you're using. Is, is it worth it, Stephen, as a farmer, when you look at, you know, growing organic versus you also grow traditional, regular crops? I mean, is it worth it for you in the long run? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I, I believe that it makes a more sustainable system. The, the, the prices are better. And I mean, really, as, as someone who works in farmers markets, I mean, it's, it's what the public wants. As it makes it so that you have a smaller toolbox uh, if you have some kind of a disaster and you have some kind of a pest breakout and you're organic, then, you know, you might lose a much, you know, have a lower yield, but, you know, your organic integrity is really important. So that there's, there's pluses and minuses. Um, we, we grow many different crops. Um, many farms, you know, have monoculture and on our farm, we have 600 varieties of fruits and, um, it's more difficult, but I, I think that it's worth it. I think it's, it's, it's better for the earth. It's better for the public and it makes better produce and, it's a system that we can do forever and, and being sustainable as, uh, you know, that's that's real important. Stephen Murray, Jr., a farmer in the Bakersfield area whose family farm sells produce over the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Stephen, thank you. Thank you very much. Tom Chapman, the CEO of the Organic Trade Association. Thanks, Tom, for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Moving on now with even more of Greater L.A. from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiotakis. Union organizing's been all over the news in the last year, from Amazon to Starbucks, even to strip clubs, as we've talked about on this program. There's more momentum behind workers' rights and higher wages than there has been in years. Locally, there is Assembly Bill 257. That was a bill that was passed in Sacramento that would raise wages and ensure safer working conditions for lower-paid food service workers. But that has been put on hold until at least 2024 because of a big referendum effort by restaurant and business trade groups to overturn it. With us to talk about this burgeoning union movement in the food industry is Mona Holmes from Eater L.A. and, of course, a regular at Greater L.A. Hi, Mona. Hi, Steve. All right. So AB 257, it's um, also known as the Fast Food Recovery Act. And what that would have meant for California's fast food workers was a raise, right? Yeah, it would have meant a higher, potentially a higher wage, but it was designed, according to lawmakers, to ensure better protections 
for fast food workers throughout California. So it had the potential to not only raise it potentially up to the wage to $22 an hour, but also hand over more power and protections to about half a million fast food workers. And it became law. And then there was this effort to reverse it. Correct. Yeah, there was a ton of opposition, particularly specifically from a group called Save Local Restaurants. And and if you looked behind it, you would notice a lot of big names in food, fast food corporations and business trade groups. So the National Restaurant Association, In-N-Out. Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, Starbucks, Chipotle, all of these organizations donated a lot of money to support the referendum effort. But then on the other side, there were, of course, fast food workers, worker unions like the Fight for 15 organization. And um, but the Save Local Restaurants organization was successful. They wound up securing enough signatures to send it back for a referendum. And so now it goes to voters uh, in California who will actually decide if it becomes law. There are, however, other labor movements happening throughout the country and Southern California as well. So fill us in on some of those happenings. Sure. I I actually find this really fascinating just because in my lifetime, I've never really seen unionization movements like this happen in such a short period of time. I think that everyone has noticed the uh, Starbucks unionization throughout the country. And there have been a ton that have unionized in Los Angeles in the last year or so. And then there is Genoa, which is the most interesting to me. And that's because this one is in Koreatown and and a lot of restaurants have Korean and Latino workers. And in 2022, they actually ratified their first union contract. And what advocates state is that they're hoping that this could become a model for restaurant workers who happen to be immigrant workers in Los Angeles or, or anywhere else, really. But that happened after the California Labor Commissioner's Office cited the owners of Genoa for violating labor laws. So there's there's a ton happening at the moment. And I am noticing that people are, workers are really fed up with just employers lacking in basic worker protections. And they are hoping that as a larger group, they can secure some power and control back in their work lives. And large restaurant corporations aside, it is expensive to run a restaurant. Um, so, I mean, from the restaurant point of view, it can be obviously pricey and to employ so many people. Right? Like, how? Do, what's the sweet spot here? Listen, this is this is one of the hardest industries to work in, Steve. This is one of the hardest industries to own a business in with rising wages, which are already mandated through the state. You know, the on January one, they they were increased again. This is this has been a progression since initially starting that a few years back. And, you know, restaurants, they operate on very thin margins. So you know, for all these costs to go potentially go up could absolutely impact the diners in their pocketbooks. And and I can't imagine that there's any other workaround. Um, but at the same time, there's there is something about fast food work that is incredibly grueling, very challenging, uh, very demanding. And these workers are are they're not asking for a ton of money, a lot of 
that has to do with their being treated like human beings, being allowed breaks, making sure that they don't secure injuries on the job. And that's what they're focused on. And, you know, it is, I, I, I would say that most of them had said it's long overdue to make sure that, that these basic protections are, are secured for their just trying to earn a living. Mona Holmes, reporter at Eater LA, regular, of course, here at GLA. Mona, as always, great to hear your voice. Thanks for having me. Great to have your ear. That's going to do it for us today. Next week on GLA, bottle shops that sell non-alcoholic drinks look to dry January for business. How have they done as the month wraps up? That's next week on Greater LA. All yours at a new time, by the way, starting Monday at 1 o'clock, right after Press Play with Madeline Brand, right here on KCRW. So GLA, Monday through Thursday at 1 and 6, starting next week, right here on KCRW. Subscribe to the podcast, too, at the website. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Sonia Geis, Phil Richards, John Meek, Amy Talk, Carlos Ramirez, Jody Adler, Mike Vogel, Holly Adams, and Christian Bordall. All had hands on the episode. I'm Steve Chitakis. Thanks for your time and your attention. Have yourself a great night. Hold up. 